Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, we're tuning in to one of my favorite specials from our chaplaincy series. It was supported by the Arthur Vinings Davis Foundation. It's guest hosted by producer Ruth Morris. And it first aired in 2017. Yes, a pre-COVID world. But I believe the lessons in this episode on finding ways to cope, grieve, and renew one's spirit are especially relevant right now. And this episode is a reminder that chaplains are uniquely trained to help in times of crisis. They are spiritual first responders. The chaplain is really there just for the person. And how rare is it in a human being's life to have somebody who is there to attend just to you? It's clear to me it's something I enjoy, and I really believe it's radical work. Every funeral allows me to rethink how I live my life. I think one of the most important things I've learned is that people are becoming who they are every single day of their lives. That development doesn't stop. Chaplains are spiritual counselors who minister to people of any faith, or no faith at all. Not in churches or temples, but in hospitals, in prisons, in life's fragile little corners. This episode, we meet a chaplain who's doing the Zen thing. My name is Koshin Paley Ellison. I'm the co-founder of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. Koshin is one of a small but growing number of chaplains in the United States who are Buddhists. In fact, he's a Buddhist monk. He works in hospice, and his goal is to take Zen Buddhism out into the world and change the very nature of caregiving itself. We sent two producers to tag along with Koshin on his daily rounds, Kalalia and Will Coley. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. How you doing? I'm good. So, you guys, I wanted to ask you just about what it's like spending time with Koshin. He's been described to me as enlightened. So maybe that's a tall order, but what's he like? He's just very approachable and open and loving and playful. So it was a really good good time. Yeah, and it was for me it was really like an opportunity to ask a Zen Buddhist monk, you know, all the things that I've wondered when I see them in their robes in the street. So things like do you curse? <laughs> yeah, he was really fun about it. I remember you know, when I asked him if he cursed, he was like, What do you mean fuck that shit? <laughs> but he doesn't. He does it too often. I don't I don't I can't see him really cursing that much, but he, he definitely demonstrated. And I ask him, does he dance? Do you do drugs? Can you eat cake? <laughs> Can he go to parties? And what did he say? He said definitely dances, goes to parties, even has a little wine here and there. It's just that not to like overindulge. Well, my question is kind of about doing the Zen thing in New York City, because when I think of Zen Buddhism, I think stillness, quiet reflection. And when I think about New York City, I think loud, brash, noisy, fast. Yeah. And he, he told us this great story about when he was a kid that he saw this image in a National Geographic magazine. This one was about Tokyo. I remember turning the page and seeing this photograph where Pretty much all the people were blurry on the city street. 
You know, it was a photo of a, a Zen Buddhist monk on a street with everyone rushing around him and everyone was blurred except for him. This man completely still in Buddhist robes and wearing this large hat where you could just see his mouth and he had a slight smile. And Koshin looked at it and immediately knew that that's what he wanted to do, that he wanted to be a Zen Buddhist monk. I remember reading the caption, it said, Zen Buddhist monk. Wow. It's not like superhero. It felt like a superhero, actually, but like an ordinary superhero. You know, like being able to be completely still in the midst of things. He also didn't feel separate. You know, he felt part of the scene. And and to me, like that image, you know, is still the image, you know, in our work at the bedside is the image of healing, about learning how to be still in the midst of things. When everything is, we're feeling jostled by the joys and sorrows of life. You know, it's the famous saying is that the small retreat is in the mountains, the great retreat is disappearing in the capital. We're going to the Goodman Brown residence, which is a hospice residence on the Upper East Side of Manhattan that we've been partnered with for 10 years. Koshin starts the day with a visit to Ronnie, a long-term hospice patient. It's raining outside, and Koshin's wearing a traditional black robe under a long trench coat. You know, the kind that many monks wear. He has a bald head and a playful smile. This kind of care is being open to what's happening. For example, Ronnie, who we're going to see today, you know, I've seen him many times, but I can't assume that he is like all those other times. You can just drop us right here. You keeping it real, Ronnie? Oh, yeah. Have a seat, make yourselves at There are only eight rooms in this hospice center, but Ronnie Getter is known as the mayor. When we walk in, he stops playing a video game. The first thing I notice about Ronnie is the tubes across his face that are attached to a large oxygen tank on the floor next to his bed. Ronnie's body is really thin and frail, but he lights up when he sees Koshin. That's a new photo, Ronnie. Who's that? That one. I don't remember that. Yeah, one of my dear, made yeah. my friend Victor. Yeah. Victor before. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Koshin asked Ronnie if he's been doing any meditation. I meditate by myself a lot. How long do you meditate for? 12 hours? <laughs> uh, 30 minutes at a time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Uh, maybe, like you said, about yeah. an hour or so. Yeah. But you can find out when you meditate, you can find out a lot of things about your body that you didn't know before. You know? That's definitely true. So what are you learning, Ronnie? Well, what I'm learning? How to be strong. Yeah. And keep loving people like I do. It's amazing that like you have yeah. to be at the end of your life and right? until and, you and get that. Things get so beautiful, like yeah. the way you wish it was. Uh, you know, a long time ago, it right. should have been this way. My mother always say, it's better late than never. Right. And it was Koshin's grandmother who inspired his chaplaincy work. 
More than 20 years ago, Koshin and his grandma Mamie made a pact to care for one another. Over the years, Koshin took her to doctor's visits, and when it was clear she was dying, Koshin moved into a hospice center to be by her side. One night that kind of changed me forever was she woke me up in the middle of the night. It was probably about two weeks before she died. She said, I never thought I'd say this. There's something to the Zen thing. She said, everyone comes here, even the well-meaning doctors and nurses and social workers and, and even many people who are dear to me, they're so afraid. And they're so inattentive. And she's like, and I just want people to be with me. So in many ways, like what we're doing today comes from those moments with my grandma Mimi. Five years after Koshin's grandmother passed away, Koshin and his husband Chodo opened the doors to the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. It's in the heart of Chelsea on West 23rd Street in Manhattan. A few days after we visited Ronnie together, I met Koshin there. The center is in a nondescript commercial building. There's a boarded-up church on one side and a bodega and barber shop on the other. It's up on the fourth floor. And what's that thing by the plant, that big bowl? It's a bell. It's a bell? Yeah. Do you want to hear it? Okay. The center reminds me of a bright loft space with its hardwood floors. Black slippers line the wall. There's a lot to look at, and I can't stop asking questions. Who are they? So they're bodhisattvas, or awakening beings that represent different qualities. So Samantabhadra is the one whose vow is to be awake in the world and through vow. I'm hearing about an entire world of heroes and characters that I know nothing about, kind of like when fans talk about Game of Thrones or sports. So, so these external reminders of the qualities we're working to cultivate in our daily life. So the basic idea is that we're looking to be a compassionate presence with the three aspects or the three tenets of our work, which is not knowing, which is to cultivate a mind that's fresh and so you're not dragging things into the room, and actually be present and bear witness, which is the second aspect. What's alive? What's important? And then the third tenet of loving action is like what you do, the compassionate thing to do, um, to find out what's useful and how they can also tap into their own resources of their own healing and wholeness. The call to be compassionate and useful also brought Koshin and his husband Chodo to the Overlook Medical Center, 25 miles away in Summit, New Jersey. Amazing how quiet it is, isn't it? He's not visiting patients. He's here to see the doctors. Imagine a New York City hospital like this. So quiet. They're already implementing your... your... According to a recent study conducted by the Mayo Clinic, 
Nearly half of all doctors in the U.S. suffer from physical or mental collapse caused by overwork or stress. Koshin believes that taking a more contemplative approach to medicine is a start to curing physician burnout. He says it's better for the doctor and for the patient, too. So I know we're having a few more physicians who are coming, um, but I say we start begin. We're in a small conference room. The tables are pushed aside and everyone sits in a circle. Some of the participants have white coats on. A few rush in after the meeting starts. Lovely to see you all. It's like it's been an age. And uh, so let's just sit upright and just take a moment to feel your feet on the floor. And suddenly, it's like Koshin brought some of the peace from the Zen Center with him. The way he talks casts a spell on everyone in the room. In the chair. You know how we have this kind of next, 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 next thing. And also, like, our patients will feel that. If you're waiting for the next thing and you're with someone, right? You can feel like when someone's preoccupied, what that feels like. At this point, Koshin leads the doctors through an exercise. And just feel the breath in your body. So imagine that you went to another doctor, your doctor, and they let you know that, well, you probably have at most seven years to live. That'll be it. So take care of what you need to take care of in the next seven years. What arises in your mind? What do you feel? What do you need to do? Seven years. So you go to the doctor and they say, well, actually, we were wrong. You have about seven months to live. Seven months to live. What do you feel? Can you take this on? I guess you hear that all the time about physicians being burned out and we're working so hard. I think that courses like this teach you that by being present and mindful, you can be there for your patients without being wiped out emotionally and drained. Um, You can actually be lifted up by your helping them through their experience. I have seven weeks to live, just shy of two months. What shifts seven weeks to live? And then all of a sudden now, it's just like I can breathe a little bit. I'm listening to the patient more. I think I hear them. Um, I don't talk over them anymore. I just let them talk. Seven days. Seven days. There's a saying that says, you know, there's no way to stop growing old. There's no way to prevent illness from coming. 
There's no way to stop my death. My actions are the only ground in which I stand. Not seven days. Seven hours. It's now 6.30. After one in the morning, you'll be dead. What shifts and what becomes clear? This is it. and any kind of exercise that allows us to do that. I think it's not just relevant for patients, um, but particularly relevant for caregivers. That's palliative care doctor Craig Blinderman. We spoke with him from New York about how contemplative care benefits not just patients, but people taking care of them too. It's very easy, you know, I come from a medical background, it's very easy in medicine, you know, with the white coat to separate yourself. I'm not the sick one. I'm not the person who's dying. I'm not the person who's, you know, going through this. You can walk out of the room. You can walk out of the office. Um, And it's this uh, opportunity uh, that Koshin gives us and that this practice gives us to really reflect on ourselves and how similar we all are. So any opportunity we have to do that enhances at least for me, enhances my ability to be able to connect further with the person who's suffering in front of me and not seeing them as so different from myself. We were also joined by Tim Ford, a Buddhist chaplain. When we arrive in a a sacredness of the moment, one of the things people often say is, why didn't I do this sooner? And especially at end of life, I've heard a lot of patients say that. Um, The wisdom that they receive by being present in the midst of a tragedy or in the midst of something really intimately sacred, they then say, I wish I had known to do this before. And as we're training physicians especially, but any providers, I think that piece is very important to push forward, to to just say this isn't just about helping someone at the end of their life. This is about us receiving the wisdom that people have come to because of being at the end of their lives and inviting others to be that present and to feel how sacred the moment can be. This is a rebroadcast of Resilience and Retreat, a special from our Chaplain series. You're listening to Interfaith Voices. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed 
to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, we're revisiting a 2017 entry in our Chaplain series, Resilience and Retreat, with guest host Ruth Morris. A good deal of the work is actually about managing your own heart, managing your own mind, getting yourself out of the way to be fully present to the patient who's before you. That's Trace Haythorn, director of the Association for Clinical Pastoral Education. He's our guide through our exploration of the lives and work of chaplains. Before the break, we met a Buddhist monk who wants to bring Zen philosophy beyond the bedside in a way that transforms caregiving itself. This more mindful approach is gaining traction, not just with chaplains, but with doctors and nurses who might be vulnerable to empathy fatigue. This model of care is often referred to as contemplative care. In the palliative world especially, we talk about being present with patients, trying to put it into a place where we are in this together and I'm, I'm joining humans in this mortal thing that we're doing because I too am mortal. My guests are Craig Blinderman, the director of Adult Palliative Care Service and an associate professor at Columbia University Medical Center, and Tim Ford, a Buddhist chaplain who instructs medical students at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. He's also a fellow at the Transforming Chaplaincy Project. And is this a new term, contemplative care? It's something that I've only heard used recently. This idea that um, being present, as Tim was saying, using mindfulness and other meditation practices to allow us to be more connected uh, in the moment with patients and ourselves is really the heart of this practice. So we don't see it as anything new or different, but just how we um, integrate that into our lives and into into the care of patients and for ourselves. And Dr. Blinderman, you wrote in a recent Huffington Post article that our current healthcare system has an empathy problem. What do you mean by that? So, you know, we know that at least in among uh, in our medical education uh, studies and and throughout medical training, when when you look at students and residents over time, they actually lose empathy um, based on various models or tools of studying that. And and what it manifests as is a number of things. One is the attention that's being paid to patients and their families 
uh, is often lessened. The ability to connect with others and risk becoming burned out is actually greater. And I've even found that there's an association with medical errors, that it's actually a safety concern. And I think another way of uh, looking at contemplative care practices is that rather than separating oneself and being less affected by what's happening, how can we be more affected and more included in what's actually going on in each moment? And in that way, we've actually seen uh, there's some studies and some evidence to suggest that using meditation and other kinds of approaches to connect actually enhances empathy, which is not terribly surprising, but I think it actually has and could have some real potential for medical training and for uh, helping our healthcare system uh, where many people will feel that their doctors are not listening to them. You know, I often hear that from patients of mine. They say, you know, no one's listening to me. And that's a symptom of an empathy problem. And in that same article, you you mentioned medical errors. You say clinical burnout has been shown to, not surprisingly, lead to an increase in medical errors, which is currently the third leading cause of death in the U.S. Tim, did you have anything to add to that real quickly? I I really appreciate the point that this isn't just about um, teaching physicians or, or any provider to survive better in the environment. It is about embracing the parts of this that can help us sustain things. When I teach M1s and M2s in their first and second year of medical school, they're all bright-eyed and beautiful people who are very, very driven to be compassionate caregivers. That's what they came into this for, most of them. But then when they are faced with the terrifying prospect of if they are not thinking ahead on a large checklist of things, someone could die. Mm -hmm. And when you hit them with that, they become terrified and they get caught in that um, sense of what happens next. And the real point I like to drive home to them at that point is if you are caught in what comes next in, in that, in that um, distraction, you won't get the parts of this that are really worth it. Um, you can sustain yourself for short periods of time on bursts of adrenaline and feeling like you're a very skilled provider, but you cannot sustain yourself over a career. In order to sustain yourself over a career of dealing with other people's tragedy, which is very, very hard work, you have to find something that sustains it for you. Okay. And help me understand, Dr. Blinderman, what physician burnout feels like. Have you ever experienced that? Uh, I came pretty close, I have to say. You know, it's this feeling of uh, hopelessness that comes into your day, this feeling that, um, you know, my, you know, I'm going through the day starting to feel maybe disconnected, feeling like I'm not feeling my full self in each moment, um, starting to become depressed, uh, saddened by the situation, maybe even feelings of not wanting to go to work, not wanting to engage. Um, And it can be really a terrifying uh, realization that all this work and all this studies and all of your efforts have brought you to this place where you feel hopeless. I can imagine that. I mean, you do a lot of training to get where you are. And I want to ask you um, if you could give me a real concrete example of when you've used this model of contemplative care in your medical practice, perhaps a patient who comes to mind where you've really been happy with the outcome. Well, I, I mean, I, my first response to that is is that while we care about outcomes in medicine, um, that's actually, it's um, maybe not something that uh, we should be motivated 
uh, completely by. Um, and it's in palliative care, it's actually it's a big struggle for us. You know, many of our team members will face you know these very challenging problems in the hospital with you know trying to help somebody relieve their symptoms, relieve their pain, their, their distress, um, and finding all sorts of ways in which that's not happening. Um, and so one of the things that we, uh, at least that, you know, I think of using contemplative care for is again, to recognize that in, if you were to look back at each moment, was I fully present? Was I fully there? Was I giving my whole self in this or what's holding me back? And then to let go of all the other things that might not manifest, right? All the things that we want, we wish this to happen. We want that to happen and knowing that that may not be the case. And so I think that's the first step is, um, is actually not focusing so much on the outcomes. I mean, in our practice, we have, for example, at the close of our, of our day, we have a, a, a contemplative care chaplain that spends time in our clinic um, and she leads us in a short meditation, usually once a week, where we go, we read the names of all the patients that we've cared for in our clinic. Um, these are patients that walk in to come to see us. Maybe they're also getting their cancer treatments in the same day, or um, and they're facing all sorts of issues with pain or symptom distress or psychological problems. And we allow that moment of saying their names to just resonate with us. And to know that whatever we did in that moment with them, whatever impact we had, it's okay. We're not looking to see, did Mrs. Jones' depression get better or not? Um, it's more about, I was with Mrs. Jones. We were all together with her in this moment, and we're going to allow that to resonate with us. And so I think that's that's the difference, and it's a hard one. You know, it's a hard It's a hard one for medical providers that are so focused on outcomes. Um, but the irony is that if you do that, you're more likely to have better outcomes too. So, you know, when you let go of the striving for good outcomes, they may just manifest themselves in any case. So it's, it's a strange kind of, uh, of thing that happens, but, uh, I think there's, there's some real truth to that. That's interesting. Ruth? Yes. Can, go ahead, can I say something to that? Please, Cause I yes. think that's a good point, Dr. Blenderman. I think there's a paradox here and we see this, especially developmentally, both with, with doctors, I see this and with chaplains, which is when we first start, uh, what we train the chaplains especially to do is to shut up and not come in with things to do, not come in with an agenda, not come in with another intervention and not to get caught up in how are you going to measure what you did. While the profession is really pushing to have more evidence-based outcomes, there is a large conversation in our profession of not losing that ability to just be present as one of the therapies that we do, of being able to come into a room with no agenda, to come and sit with that person where they are. And like Dr. Blenderman said, the paradox is once you do that well and deeply— then you come up with interventions and things to do and outcomes that are all, I believe, measurable um, and are all much more effective. But you have to start with uh, a practice of being able to be present because if you just apply, for instance, mindfulness um, techniques, if I give that to a brand new, fresh out of seminary chaplain who has never sat with patients before and say one of the things we can do for our patients is to teach them to breathe correctly and, and, and count to ten, they're going to do that with every patient because they're so nervous about what can I do for this person. They're going to come in with that stick and use it on every single thing that they see um, as a way of protecting themselves from the anxiety of what do I do next. Mm -hmm. But instead, if we teach them, sit with that patient in that anxiety because they have that anxiety also 
and then you may be able to find things that are very effective and helpful. I think it's very important to not put the cart before the horse on this, and especially in training uh, medical professionals and chaplains, we have to be very clear to start with presence and depth of presence before we get into measurable interventions and outcomes. That's that's interesting. When you talk about relationships and depth of presence, that reminds me of another point that Cushion has made in an earlier interview I was reading a transcript from. He was talking about how a lot of patients are sort of isolated and that doctors have commented to him that a patient will come in for some sort of outpatient surgery and call an Uber to go home from the hospital because there's Mm -hmm. no one to pick them up. Or doctors will ask their patients, who are the five friends who could drop everything and be here right now with us if there was a medical emergency? And not all patients can get to five. And in those cases, Cushion said, doctors are actually prescribing going out and building real relationships. (laughs) And I was wondering, if Dr. Blinderman, if that is something that you do or something that you've seen yeah absolutely we have a a lot of very isolated patients and we know also psychodynamically some of them actually consider us their family you know i'm like a father to some or a boyfriend to others or a son to others or my nurse could be a sister to others i mean there really is this these uh relationships that play out um, especially when patients are not uh, receiving that sense of community or sense of belonging or love from others in their lives. And we, we certainly have a number of isolated patients. I've been speaking to Dr. Craig Blinderman, Director of Adult Palliative Care Service at Columbia University Medical Center, and to Tim Ford, an instructor at Virginia Commonwealth University and a fellow at the Transforming Chaplaincy Project. Will Coley and Kalalia produced this week's Chaplain's Piece. And we want to send out two very big thank yous. One for L.D. Brown, who composed the music for that story. You can hear more at grayreverend.com. And one for photographer Loris Guzetta, who took some really beautiful pictures for us of Chaplain Koshin Paley Ellison at work. You can see them on our website at interfaithradio.org. You're listening to a rebroadcast of an entry in our special chaplain series. This has inspired a production of Interfaith Voices. This has inspired a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, we're revisiting a 2017 entry in our chaplain series, Resilience and Retreat, with guest host Ruth Morris. We end the show with one more profile of a chaplain. Kate Braystrup in Maine. She ministers to game wardens, people who come to the aid of hunters and fishermen and hikers who've had mishaps in the wilderness. Next, Braystrup tells us about an unusual technique she uses to support the grieving. It's a technique she first used on herself back in 1996 when her husband was killed in an accident at the age of 39. This story comes to us from the moth. So Nina's mother came up to me, and she said, I have a problem. Nina, my daughter, wants to visit her cousin Andy. Well, I looked over at Nina, and Nina was hanging by her knees from the swing in her backyard. Her hair was kind of sweeping the ground. I said, how old is Nina again? She said, five. I said, oh. I should probably mention that Andy was dead. 
um, which isn't unusual. Uh, I have been the chaplain to the main warden service for 12 years now, and in addition to enforcing fish and wildlife law, Maine's game wardens respond to a variety of outdoor calamities, including uh, search and rescue operations, snowmobile accidents, all-terrain vehicle accidents, homicides, suicides, drownings. And when it's a fatal, the chaplain goes with them. When I teach the game wardens, the new baby game wardens at the academy, the art of managing death, the example I usually use is my own. I want to illustrate for them that when a family member says they want to see the body of their loved one, you can trust that. You really can. So I tell them about when my husband, Drew, died. He died in 1996. He was a police officer, and he was killed instantly when his cruiser was T-boned by a truck. And as soon as I heard the news, I wanted to see his body. I wanted to take care of him and bathe and dress him. And I said as much to the funeral director when he showed up at the house. And the funeral director used that special voice that they learn in funeral parlor school. Yes, he said, I see, yes. And then he went back to the funeral parlor, went into his office and called the state police and said, I thought you should know that trooper's widow wants to bathe and dress the body herself. And basically the state police freaked out. So phone calls were going ricocheting back and forth across the state of Maine all night long from the state police command staff to the funeral parlor to Tom, the trooper who had been assigned specifically to manage me. And in the morning, Tom arrived at my house with the news that the state police, upon consideration, had decided that they would allow me to do this thing. But you have to take me with you, he said. And I'll go too, said my mom. Good old mom. And you have to take Sergeant Cunningham and Sergeant Drake as well because they aren't sure about this. And you're going to have to trust us, Kate, because if we don't like what we see, we are going to take you out. So I pictured all three police officers taking out their sidearms <laughs> right there in the funeral parlor. I don't think that will be necessary, I said. She grew up on a farm, said my mom. She's used to dead things. <laughs> what were they afraid of? Well, duh. They were afraid that seeing the body would make it hurt more. They were trying to protect me. So I had to feign absolute confidence. And I took my mother's hand, and she and I, flanked by law enforcement professionals, did a weird kind of perp walk up the street to the funeral parlor where Mr. Moss, the funeral director, let us in. And they all kind of kept their eyeballs peeled watching me walk into the cool room where Drew's body lay. And he was there, and he was dead. But that's all. He was just dead. And he was wearing the Halloween novelty boxer shorts my, our nine-year-old had chosen for him 
And they were covered with little bats that were saying, trick or treat. I'm okay, I said. So the troopers and my mom and the funeral director all went out, and I had about 20 minutes by myself. And then they came back, and together we got Drew bathed and dressed in his Class A's, his dress uniform. I can't say it was easy. I mean, if you've ever tried to put someone in a Class A uniform who's not cooperating, (laughs) you know what I mean. But we made him look spiffy. And it was better than fine. It was better than okay. It was terrible and beautiful and funny and sad. And it was fine. So after that, that's the story that I use. Um, Occasionally there'll be a warden who needs a biblical reference. So I'll point out to him that Back in Bible times, there were no state troopers or funeral directors to get in the way of things. And Mary Magdalene did not have to justify herself to the disciples, did not have to overcome their protective skepticism when she wanted to go to Jesus' tomb to anoint his body. And she did not feel called upon to justify her distress when she arrived and found the body gone. Nowadays, we are led to believe that it's the presence of the body, not its absence, that is most distressing. But in my experience, and I have a lot of experience by now, it is far, far more common for the bereaved to wish they had seen their loved one's body than for them to regret having done so. So at the main warden service, we are very proactive, as they say, about making space, about empowering and enabling and encouraging families, and about getting the strangers out of the way at some point in our operation so that the moms and the dads and the lovers and the friends and the siblings can take care of their own. And let me tell you, the mourners are magnificent. Even, even when the body is smelly or skeletal or ugly, they're magnificent. They are tender and brave. A mother will smooth the wet hair back from her drowned son's face. The dad will hold his hand. The spouse will lay a flower on his breast and murmur endearments. I love you, they say. And goodbye. Is this what Nina had in mind? Little Nina? When she wanted to visit Cousin Andy? I don't know. And I don't think she knew. Because she'd never seen a dead person before. She didn't even live on a farm. Right? I mean, maybe there was like a dead goldfish in her past. But she's five. That's not a lot of past to work with. What if it hurts more? Her mom said. What if it hurts more? She's five years old, and Cousin Andy was four. Suffer the little children to come unto me. That line kept going through my head, although, as the wardens told me, the one good thing you could say about Andy's death was that he didn't suffer. He didn't have time. 
He was killed instantly when an ATV, an all-terrain vehicle driven by a neighbor, rolled over on him. And when we'd finished processing the scene, the body was taken directly to the funeral home. And that's where Nina wanted to go. That's, she wanted to go and visit his body. I had seen his body. I can't say it was easy. But she's so sure, her mom said. She's five years old, her dad said. Finally, I said, you know, I think it would be okay. I don't believe it would make it worse. She's your child. You know her. You know what's best for her. But I think it would be okay. Well, we're going to have to think about it, said the dad. A few days later, I went back because the family had asked me to preside over the service. So I arrived at the church early, and Nina's mom was up at the altar table arranging photographs and pictures and um, flowers and Tonka trucks and stuff. She said, I have to remember to leave room for the box containing Andy's ashes. But it's a small box. I said, so what did you decide about Nina? What did Nina do? And she looked at me, and her eyes went big with the persistent astonishment of someone who's seen a miracle. Her eyes just pop. And she goes, let me tell you, let me tell you, it was amazing. Little Nina, they drive her to the funeral home. She hops out of the car. She's out across the parking lot with such confidence that they have to scramble to keep up, right? And they get to the door of the cool room where Andy's body is, and they stop her. And they say, Nina, you know, you know, Andy is not going to be able to talk to you. Yep, says Nina. And you know that he isn't going to be able to stand up or walk or move or even open his eyes. Yes, yes, says Nina. And she opens the door and in she goes. And she walks right up to the dais where Andy's little body lay, covered with his quilt his mom had made him when he was a baby. And she walks all the way around the dais, touching him, making sure he's all there. And then she takes his hand and she puts her head down on his chest and she talks to him. Well, after about 10 minutes of this, her mother, who's awash in tears, says, Okay, Nina, are you ready to go? No, says Nina, but I'll tell you when I am. So she smooths the hair back from his brow. She sings to him. She puts his Fisher-Price telescope in his hand so that he can see anything he wants to see from heaven. And then she said, I'm ready to go. Now I'm ready to go. But he's not going to be getting up, so I have to tuck him in. So she walks around the dais again, tucking him in very carefully. And then she says, I love you, Andy Dandy. Goodbye. You can trust a human being with grief, even a small human being. I tell the wardens, walk fearlessly into the house of mourning. For grief is only love that has come up against its oldest challenge. And after all these mortal years, love 
knows how to handle it. I don't need to have confidence. I certainly don't need to have to feign confidence anymore in that. Because I have Nina. And with her parents' permission, so do you. Thank you. Kate Braystrup serves as a chaplain at the Warden Service in Maine. And she's also a best-selling author. Her story was originally featured on the Moth Radio Hour, produced by Atlantic Public Media and distributed by PRX. She first told her story at the Live Moth Main Stage event in Portland, Maine. And today, our moment of Zen comes to us from, well, a Zen Buddhist monk. Here's Koshin Paley Ellison one last time. We asked Koshin if he'd do a couple of readings for us, poems that have taken on special meaning for him in his work as a hospice chaplain. So I'm reading The Gate by Marie Howe. And these are poems that she wrote after her brother John had died and during his dying. This is called The Gate. I had no idea that the gate I would step through to finally enter this world would be the space my brother's body made. He was a little taller than me, a young man, but grown himself by then, done at 28, having folded every sheet, rinsed every glass he could ever rinse under the cold running water. This is what you've been waiting for, he used to say to me. And I'd say, what? And he'd say, this, holding up my cheese and mustard sandwich. And I'd say, what? And he'd say, this, sort of looking around. The last time we had dinner together in a restaurant with white tablecloths, he leaned forward and took my two hands in his hands and said, I'm going to die soon. I want you to know that. And I said, I think I do know. And he said, what surprises me is you don't. And I said, I do. And he said, what? And I said, no, you're going to die. And he said, no, I mean that you are. That's all for this week. A special thanks to our producer, Kevin McCarthy, and a shout out to the production team for this special. This episode was originally produced by Ruth Morris, Laura Quirrell, Abigail Holtzman, Joanna Broder, and our founder, Maureen Fiedler. I want to say a special word of thanks to you, our listeners, for your sustaining support to our small and mighty team. We couldn't do this without you. To learn more about how you can support us, explore the archives, and sign up for the podcast, please visit interfaithradio.org. I hope wherever you are, you are safe, you stay connected, and we'll see you next week. I'm Umbreen Khan. Thank you.